Crest in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. Happy Tuesday and greetings from an icy Ann Arbor. Or did you spend another two hours talking about the things that matter most? As you can tell, this is not Al. He's uh, not able to come in today because of the weather, but Lord willing, we'll be back tomorrow. And we're looking back at some other things today. But before we go anywhere else, wanted to be sure that we don't forget to offer a congratulations to another member of the EWTN radio family, WGIC 94.9 FM in Clarksville, Tennessee, celebrating seven years with us this week. Congrats to uh, Deacon Dominic Azara and everybody else at Immaculate Conception Parish from all your friends at EWTN. On today's program, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about death. Uh, That'll be actually the whole second hour, and we'll be previewing it in a commentary from Al coming up in just a few minutes. And Al's going to ask, what does the Bible say about eternal life? As I said, Randall Smith joins us later in this program. And we're going to be talking about the meaning of life and death, because all of us are invited by Jesus to accept his gift of eternal life. And so what Al does in this commentary is really just a rapid fire all throughout Scripture, all the times that eternal life is mentioned. So you can see how prevalent a role it plays in the Scriptures. And then uh, later on in this hour, we will take a step back in history, looking at the life and the faith of Winston Churchill. January 24th is the anniversary of his death, and we'll be exploring this with Gary Scott Smith, asking the question, what did faith mean to Winston Churchill? Unlike a lot of politicians of his day, he was not transparent about his beliefs, he did not regularly attend services, and he once described himself as not a pillar of the church, but as a buttress. Still, he did have a sense of faith that contributed to his idea that he was walking with destiny. Gary Scott Smith is our guest. He's the author of Duty and Destiny, The Life and Faith of Winston Churchill. And then coming up in the next hour... We're all going to die, so what's the point of life? Uh, Randall Smith, author of From Her Here to Eternity, joins us. And, of course, we're all going to die. We all know it. And in all likelihood, within a century of our death, few people will even know we existed. So if all we work for, learn, and experience simply comes to nothing, does life actually have any meaning? Short answer is yes, but we'll take a longer answer with Randall Smith in the next hour. That's all coming up in the next two hours after this news break. Thanks, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, January 23rd. It's the Feast of St. Marianne Cope. Today's news is brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. Former President Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley are going head-to-head in New Hampshire's presidential primary. Coming out of a polling station, Haley says she's moving on to South Carolina. This has always been a marathon. It's never been a sprint. We want to be strong in Iowa. We want to be stronger than that in New Hampshire. We're going to be even stronger than that in South Carolina. While most attention has been on the Republican side, Democrats are on the ballot too. Just not Joe Biden. Biden is the first incumbent president in more than 50 years to not file in New Hampshire's primary. Instead, a host of other Democrats are on the ballot, including author Marianne Williamson and Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips. 
The Israel-Hamas war is nearing the four-month mark. Israeli officials said yesterday was the deadliest day for the country's military in Gaza, with two dozen soldiers being killed. This comes as Israel pushes for a two-month pause in fighting in exchange for the remaining hostages being held by Hamas. Oppenheimer leads all films with 13 Academy Award nominations this year. Christopher Nolan's historical drama is up for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor. Meanwhile, Greta Gerwig's Barbie, the other half of last summer's Barbenheimer phenomenon, is up for eight awards, but got shut out of some of the biggest categories, including Best Director and Best Actress. Charles Osgood has died, the longtime anchor of CBS News Sunday Morning, passing away at the age of 91. He also produced The Osgood File, which his radio commentaries ran from 1971 until 2017. CBS is reporting that Osgood died Tuesday at his home in New Jersey. His family said he was suffering from dementia. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. J.B. Phillips was an Anglican pastor and scholar who created a very good paraphrase of the New Testament. He makes St. Paul's letters read like well-written editorials. C.S. Lewis held Phillips' translation in very high regard. He said, quote, it's like looking at a familiar picture after it's been cleansed, end quote. Phillips, after translating the New Testament, decided to write a little book on the experience of doing so. And in a portion of that book, he mentions two things that really had surprised him, that he was kind of overwhelmed by as he was doing the translation of the New Testament. The first thing is how often we are warned about false prophets and false teachers and false Christs. And the second thing was how ubiquitous were statements about receiving eternal life now and in the age to come. Two things just really struck him. Be wary of false teachers. And secondly, immerse yourself in the confident hope of eternal life, which begins now, and is the motive for how we live in this world. Next hour, we're going to be joined by Randall Smith, who's a professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. He's written, From Here to Eternity, Reflections on Death, Immortality, and the Resurrection of the Body. So I thought I'd do something in preparation uh, for our time with uh, Dr. Smith. I'd like to load us up scoop after scoop of Scripture passages dealing with eternal life. I'm limiting it to eternal life, not going after heaven, you know, or, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the new creation, just eternal life. And I say scoop after scoop because these passages are basically scooped out of their original context in the Scriptures, and they're piled on top of one another. But they're sweet, and I like to think of this as an impossibly high tower of ice cream scoops. Again, I'm focused only on passages dealing with eternal life. And this is so important to us because our hope is rooted in the historical bodily resurrection of Christ. St. Paul said, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we are fools. Uh, So, again, no resurrection no hope of eternal life. Let me focus in here on New Testament passages 
that deal with eternal life. And again, my intention here is to kind of overwhelm us with how frequently this is pounded home to us on the pages of the New Testament. Matthew nineteen twenty nine. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Matthew twenty five forty six, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. John three fourteen through 16 and verse 36. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever, whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John four thirteen and 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John five twenty four, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John six forty forty seven fifty four. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John ten twenty seven and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John seventeen three, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Romans 2, 6 and 7. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Romans six twenty two twenty three. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Galatians 6, 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy, that in me Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Titus 1, 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Titus 3, 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. 1 John 2, verse 25. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. 1 John 5, 11 and 13. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Jude 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, for it leads to eternal life. We, we should never be intimidated by those who try to make us believe that Christian faith is only so much pie in the sky by and by. Eternal life is received now, and it's to have a transforming effect on those who receive it. Uh, we're able to live more fully because we've been freed from the fear of death. Uh, we know there's a difference between the destiny of the just and the destiny of the unjust. We don't all end up as fertilizer. Mother Teresa's destiny is not the same as the person who persists in human trafficking. She accompanies desperate souls to eternity where every uh, tear will be dried and every wound healed. The trafficker accompanies desperate souls into earthly bondage and brutality and visits upon them untold suffering. Historically, Christianity has never been content to wait for heaven. From the start, we saved infants uh, that were left to die in the Roman Empire. We opened our homes to the poor. We opened our worship to the enslaved. In the early 4th century, there's a wonderful story. Famine and disease struck the army of the Roman Emperor Constantine. Bucomius, a pagan soldier in that army, watched in amazement as many of his fellow Romans brought food to the afflicted men and without discrimination bestowed help on those in need. Curious, Pacomius asked, what moves these people? What kind of religion is this? And he wondered, where, does this, where do these acts of generosity and humanity come from? He began to learn about the faith, and before he knew it, he was on the road to conversion. This kind of amazement has attended Catholic charitable work through the ages. Even the skeptic Voltaire uh, was awed by the heroic spirit of self-sacrifice that animated so many of the church's sons and daughters. Um, he, he said, peoples separated from the Roman Catholic religion have imitated, but imperfectly, so generous a charity. In fact, the Catholic Church, he said, invented charity as we know it in the West. And this was known in the first century, in the second century, in the third century. The pagan writer Lucian uh, observed in astonishment, quote, The earnestness with which the people of this religion help one another in their needs is incredible. They spare themselves nothing for this end. Their first lawgiver put it into their heads that they were all brothers. Julian the Apostate, the Roman emperor who made a futile effort in the 4th century to return the empire to paganism, had to agree. He said, while the pagan priests neglect the poor, these hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity. And they display... Uh, <clears throat> they display... Oh, that he said, and by display of false compassion have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. See their love feasts, their Eucharists, and their tables are spread out for the poor. 
Such practice is common among them and causes a contempt of our pagan gods. The world's a different place because God visited it in the flesh and inaugurated a movement that is still at work feeding the hungry, binding up the wounds of the victims of violence. In Turkey today, in Syria, it's going on, urging that justice be given the poor. If you were to stick a needle into the earth and withdraw from it all the charitable enterprises motivated by the love of Christ, this world would implode of its own moral weight in darkness. But Christ remains in the world through those who have been united to him through baptism and faith. And this is why St. Paul could write enthusiastically, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. St. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ is the bearer, of course, of eternal life. And it's given to us as we are united to him by faith in baptism. We're living in a world which is, I think, losing hope. We see deaths of despair multiplying. This is a time when you really do have to claim the gift of eternal life, which we have received and which is available to all of our friends and relatives and loved ones. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. St. Ignatius of Loyola describes the challenging characteristics of spiritual desolation in the fourth rule of his 14 rules for the discernment of spirits. St. Ignatius states that finding oneself totally slothful, tepid, sad, falls within the experience of spiritual desolation. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, The adverb totally is powerful here. Ignatius applies it to three further forms of spiritual desolation. Persons in such desolation may experience themselves as entirely slothful, tepid, and sad. When a person finds themselves totally slothful, they lack spiritual vitality. When a person is tepid, they lack spiritual zeal. And when they experience a sadness connected to their life of faith, they lack interior joy. Have you asked for the grace to identify and reject spiritual desolation in your life today? For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. You know, maybe we need to ask ourselves, do we really know Jesus? Maybe another way to ask that would be, how familiar are you with the Gospels? When I was living in D.C., I was on the plane, taking a late flight home, sitting next to a young girl. She was probably 16, 17. I had my collar on, and we got talking, and she said, um, somehow in the course of the conversation, she acknowledged that she was running away from home and was in the midst of uh, an awful lot of difficulties that were going on. Her story seemed to be remarkably akin to the story of the prodigal son, which we just heard this past Sunday at Mass, huh? And so I started to speak a little bit about that with her. And I said, you sound a little bit like the younger son in the story of the prodigal son. And she looked at me like I was from Mars. 
And I said, are you not familiar with the story of the prodigal son? And she says, no, never heard it. And I just looked at her and I says, oh my goodness, are you in for a wonderful evening? He was a doctor of the church and one of the most famous saints of all time. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Augustine is honored for his immense contributions to theology, but he balanced his genius with humility. Once declared it was pride that changed angels into devils, it is humility that makes men as angels. He died in 461. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. We are the pro-life generation, passionate about building the culture of life in our healthcare and in our nation. But not all health care options are equally pro-life, and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic health care ministry, providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their health care choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF Curo at MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Mark the anniversary of the death of Winston Churchill, who died in 1965. Uh, Churchill is often regarded as one of the, arguably, the greatest man of the 20th century. I mean, he shows up on lists very high. In, um, and in the United States, we uh, remember him now maybe mostly because of the role he played, of course, in World War II. And it's often crystallized down to his speech of June 18th of 1940. It's commonly called the finest hour speech. Just take a little listen here. The battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed, and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. 
again, two short excerpts from uh, Churchill's famous uh, speech of uh, June 1940. Uh, it's called the finest, commonly called the finest hour speech. The phrase there that caught my attention years ago when I first heard it was this idea of uh, he was to fight to save Christian civilization. I always wondered, well, what what did Churchill actually? believe. And we've over the years we've had conversations about this on this program. But I'm delighted to invite to the program today Dr. Gary Scott Smith, uh, retired chair of the History Department at Grove City College. Uh, he's a fellow for the uh, Faith and Politics with the Center for Vision and Values. And uh, Gary's been with us before talking about the faith of our presidents from George Washington to George W. Bush, religion in the Oval Office, and the religious lives of American presidents. He just published Duty and Destiny, the Life and Faith of Winston Churchill. And so maybe I'll be able to figure out exactly what it is that uh, Winston Churchill believed about the classic Christian creeds. Gary, good to have you with me. Thanks. Thanks, Al. Uh, let me ask you, is it difficult to nail down what Winston Churchill believed about topics like the divinity of Christ or the nature of the Eucharist? Well, absolutely. He wasn't very transparent about what he believed. His views changed to some extent over time. Scholars and popularizers have interpreted his views in a variety of different ways. So, yes, I would say it's very difficult to nail down what he believed. His views were complex and and constantly in flux. Now, it's a little it's a little funny, isn't it? Because, I mean, he was a fairly transparent person in other areas of his life. Well, this is true. and But this is also true of a lot of other politicians, particularly okay. ones whose views are not mainstream. I've argued before that people like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, Abraham Lincoln weren't very transparent with what they believed about religious matters in many ways because they clashed with mainstream American views. And mm-hmm. I think the same thing can be said about Churchill. Uh, his views were not uh, mainstream Anglican views. Um, superficially, yes. And I think the average Briton uh, thought his, he was much more Christian than he actually was. But uh, his his private views were perhaps much more Unitarian than Anglican. That is, he believed that God was supreme and God was the creator, and he believed in providence, but he didn't believe in the divinity of Christ. I think that's pretty clear. So, if that's your situation, you don't uh, you don't trumpet that to your to your society when you're trying to lead it, and particularly in times of trauma like World War II. Mm. Yeah, very true. Uh, you start out the book by talking about competing conceptions of Churchill's faith. Can you give us a sketch of those competing conceptions? Sure. On the one hand, you have people who say that he was an atheist or an agnostic or perhaps a deist. That, that is one who believed that God created the world and then left it to run on its own. So the watchmaker God who abandoned the world. Many who would say that religion wasn't all that significant in Churchill's life. On the other extreme, you have people who make a case that he was a fairly conventional Christian, at least in terms of his view of a transcendent God, his view of Christian civilization being good for the world, his view of morality, 
the need for God to be there to ensure that there would be a judgment someday, that there would be heaven and hell. So, you know, you run the, you run the extremes, from, you run from those two extremes. I come down somewhat in the middle, arguing that religion was significant to him at some times of his life more than others, particularly in his youth growing up. goes through a period of skepticism when he's in the Army in India, and he's fighting in various battles in Africa. But he returns, he, he repudiates his most overt skepticism, and I think for most of his life is is fairly conventional in some of his beliefs, but certainly not an Orthodox Christian in that he doesn't affirm the deity of Christ, he doesn't go to church very often. Um, so you, know, you, you can see the variety of perspectives yeah. there yeah. In, in his life. Tell us a little bit about his uh, moral and spiritual upbringing. Who had who had sway in his life? Yeah, so of course he was the the son of Lord Randolph Churchill, who was a parliament uh, parliamentarian, a, a member of parliament, and Jenny Jerome Churchill, who was an American uh, heiress that he married. But they were typical parents of upper crust British society during the late Victorian period in that they were much more involved in their own social life and relationships and activities than they were taking care of their children. So they entrusted his upkeeping to a nanny named Elizabeth Everest, who was a very devout Anglican and very concerned about trying to nurture him in her faith, Uh, prayed with him, read the Bible to him, taught him Bible stories. And then, of course, like many children of his uh, socioeconomic class, he went off to boarding schools, in his case, three of them, most significantly Harrow, which was a, a competitor to Eton. And there they had required chapel, and they had religious instruction in the classroom. Some of it focused on the Bible. Uh, Churchill had a, a really quite deep understanding of Scripture. He, he quoted it frequently. He had a phenomenal memory and a great ability to be able to recite things that he had that he had learned, whether it was poetry or Anglican hymns or the Bible, and that also led people to think he was perhaps more religious than he actually was. Mm-hmm. He he, uh, where where did he develop such a, a, a effective uh, writing style? I mean, he he just unbelievable amount of words flowed from his pen, and they were well done too. <laughs> Well, I think you'd have to say it was a gift, because he's not university educated. His uh, highest level of education was at Sandhurst, the military academy, where he prepared to be part of the British cavalry. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, he honed it with with all kinds of of practice. He wrote for a lot of newspapers who paid him for articles. He was a war correspondent. Uh, He wrote voluminously over the course of his life, as you indicated, even won a Nobel Prize in Literature in 1953. <laughs> so, but, but, it, but it was mainly self-taught, certainly. Wow, that's great. That's great. How does, how does he look upon other um, big, you know, famous actors in British history who were more uh, evangelical, like William Wilberforce? Yeah, he said virtually nothing about those folks. Um, I could find very little relationship that he had, for example, with C.S. Lewis, who was one of the other well-known radio voices of England during during the mid-20th century and during the war. Um, 
so yeah, he he said very little about his Christian predecessors, whether we're talking about Wilberforce or uh, <clears throat> Shaftesbury, a leading Christian parliamentarian who promoted industrial reform, or Gladstone, or or Baldwin, or any of the other Christian uh, devoutly Christian prime ministers who preceded him. So in that sense, I think he was much more influenced by skeptics who wrote despairingly about the Christian faith, um, like like Gibbons, who Edward Gibbons, who wrote The Fall and Decline of the, the Roman Empire, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and, and William Lecky, um, William Reed, uh, people that he wrote in, he read in India when he had quite a bit of time on his hands when he was there in the military. And he was, in, in essence, getting his, his kind of university education by reading extensively, but a lot of it was in works that were quite skeptical towards the Christian faith. Interesting. Uh, he... You write uh, that he had a, a sense of destiny. Others have pointed this out. Where does that come from? And it, does he see that in relationship to God? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, where it comes from seems to be intrinsic to his personality and his life experience. And I talk about in the book how he had so many experiences that could have killed or crippled him, and he was impervious to danger. I mean, once fell from a 30-foot bridge and severely was injured, was in a coma for several days. Um, He was hit by a car in New York City when he looked the wrong way crossing the street. Um, He was almost killed numerous times when he was in the military. Um, He was captured by the Boers during the Boer War when he was a war correspondent, escaped and had a harrowing experience there. So it was those kind of experiences that, that convinced him that he was being saved for something significant, and his most his most famous experience, uh, his most famous statement with regard to that was that when he first took over as prime minister uh, in May of 1940, he later said that he felt like he was walking with destiny, which of course is the title of Andrew Roberts' famous uh, biography yeah. of him. So, but as early as age 16, he had this this dream where he saw himself later as being in charge of defending London from uh, military attack, which hmm. turned out to be exactly prophetically right Exactly, uh, in terms of what happened. But there are times where he was pretty overt and said, yes, um, God controls the universe and God is preserving me. When he was in dif- difficult straits, he often prayed for God's help and assistance and felt like he received it. But other times he talked more about fate or luck or... <laughs> forces that were not distinctly Christian controlling the universe. Interesting. Interesting. My guest is uh, Dr. Gary Scott Smith. Uh, Looking at the, the, well, the book is Duty and Destiny, The Life and Faith of Winston Churchill. I recommend it to you. And uh, we are acknowledging the uh, anniversary yesterday, the anniversary of the death of Winston Churchill in 1965. I'm Al Crest. We'll be back. There's a lot more to talk about. When I was outside of the church, there was always an unsettled feeling. There was always a feeling of something missing and something not complete. The the deal clincher is we found our way to our our parish and we met just an incredible pastor. We learned things that we'd never been taught. Wouldn't be the person that I am without the church and without the sacraments, particularly the Eucharist. I can't live without it. If you've been away from the Catholic Church, visit catholicscomehome.org. 
This program brought to you in part by the following nonprofit, Christian in College. Looking for a life-changing experience this summer that will strengthen your child's faith and immerse them in a joyful Catholic culture? Well, send them to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. It's located in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and The Best Week Ever is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. You can learn more and apply at bestweekever.com. Mention Al Cresto when applying. That's bestweekever.com. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. There was a big story about this Catholic college saying, oh, we are going to open our doors to anyone who identifies as a woman. So a male student coming in, but if he calls himself a woman, that's fine. This is all about diversity and equality. This is a Catholic women's college. And so, thanks be to God, there was a lot of pushback. And guess what? The school rescinded. How important it is not to give up and to remember that we can and should respectfully, always with love, express our concerns. It doesn't matter. The victory is up to God. But sometimes we do see that success in the victories, as is the case with St. Mary's College. It says now it needs to go back to its roots and get a deeper understanding of what it means to be a Catholic college for women. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Is it impossible to live Jesus Christ's command that the marriage bond be indissoluble? No, says the Catholic Catechism. The Lord has not placed too heavy a burden on the shoulders of a married couple. By coming to restore the order of creation disturbed by sin, Christ himself gives the strength and grace to live marriage in the new dimension of the reign of God. By following Christ, renouncing themselves, and taking up their crosses, spouses will be able to receive the original meaning of marriage and live it with the help of Christ. St. Paul, in a letter to the Ephesians, emphasizes this when he admonishes men to love their wives as Christ loved the church. For this reason, Paul says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Gary Scott Smith. We're looking over uh, Duty and Destiny, the Life and Faith of Winston Churchill, in our discussion occasioned by uh, Gary's publication of this book, and also the fact that uh, yesterday was the anniversary of the uh, death of Winston Churchill. 
Why don't you listen to just a, a very short, uh, you know, excerpt from his uh, Men of Valor speech, uh, taking us back. Uh, this was his first uh speech as prime minister, in fact. And at the close of it, it you actually can hear him quoting from uh, the book of First Maccabees, chapter 3. Let's get a feel for this uh, uh, speech. I have formed an administration of men and women of every party and of almost every point of view. We have differed and quarreled in the past. But now one bond unites us all. To wage war until victory is won and never to surrender ourselves to servitude and shame, whatever the cost and the agony may be. Today is Trinity Sunday. Centuries ago, words were written to be a call and a spur to the faithful servants of truth and justice. Arm yourselves and be ye men of valor and be in readiness for the conflict. For it is better for us to perish in battle than to look upon the outrage of our nation and our altars. As the will of God is in heaven, even so let him do. Again, we're looking at the life and faith of Winston Churchill, Dr. Gary Scott Smith, my guest. You know, I was wondering earlier today, I was talking about unity on this in this nation. The, the, the president has been calling for unity. And the question always is, what's the basis for unity? When Winston Churchill talked about Christian civilization, what was he thinking of? As What constituted Christian civilization? What was the basis for it? Who's in and who's out? Well, of course, he would try to construe that term, Christian civilization, as broadly as possible in the midst of World War II. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, he was trying to... um, Hopefully hopefully listeners caught in the first excerpts from the Finest Hour speech that he was saying in 1940, well before the United States came into the war, that that what's going on uh, is going to affect the United States, right. not just Britain. Yeah. And it was a call to the United States to care about what was happening and to provide resources to help the British. And, of course, he was working on Roosevelt for a couple of years uh, to try to get the United States into the war to support the Allied cause. So anyway, he, he was looking at pretty much the entire English-speaking world, as well as other places that affirm Christianity, uh, he will have a speech in 1940 at Christmas time, appealing to the Italian king uh, as the joint heirs of Christendom, hmm. Britain and Italy, to uh, to support you know to support them and not wage war alongside of the Nazis. Right. So he he construes it as broadly as he, as he can. So it's it's the longstanding uh, Christian ethos, Christian values, Christian principles that had emerged uh, out of the Roman, the late part of the Roman Empire, and then had dominated Europe, and then had spread to other parts of the world. So, of course, in England, it's primarily Anglicanism, but there's a pretty strong dissenting tradition at that point. Right. What we would call mainstream Protestants, mm-hmm. and also a Catholic tradition. So he's he's really reaching out as broadly as he can, and arguing that these foundational values that underlie British society. Uh, and, and in fact, in fact, the entire British Empire are, are rooted in the Judeo-Christian tradition. They're, yeah. they're rooted in Scripture. They're rooted in a transcendent God. So, 
that's essentially what he has in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, did he have? Did he ever speak about the Catholic Church? Is, what was his attitude towards the Catholic Church? Well, he had a very good relationship um, during World War II with the head of, of Catholicism in England. In fact, a, a better relationship with with that uh, leader than he did with the head of the Anglican Church at that time, hmm. with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, sometimes, off the record, he would he could be kind of negative towards Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, in his history of the English-speaking people, he had some rather negative uh, things to say about Catholicism. On the other hand, he appreciated the the ritualistic uh, aspects of Catholic worship. He appreciated the aesthetic beauty of Catholicism. Um, he he definitely saw Catholics as, as allies at difficult times, both during World War II and during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So I would say it was, it was kind of a mixed sure. view that he had of Catholicism. Let's let's go to this. You mentioned um, his appeal to, to Roosevelt. Uh, Describe for us the the meeting they had on uh, the Prince Wales and this how he engineered the worship service, the choice of hymns. I just think that's a fascinating story. What well, is a fascinating story because recognize that this occurs in August of 1941. So this is what leads to what's called the Atlantic Charter, a, a statement of joint American. British aims for the war, but the United States is not involved in the war. This is several months before Pearl Harbor and the Japanese attack. So they they meet to discuss uh, their mutual concerns, as you say, on Prince of Wales off the coast of Newfoundland. And one of the main things they do while they were there is to hold a worship service. And they have Anglican, well, I should say they have British and U.S. chaplains. They read from the Book of Joshua. They sing Onward Christian Soldiers and other Christian hymns. They pray. They have hundreds of, of men uh, who are serving uh, in both uh, the American Army and the British Army, or British Navy, I should say, who are there, and they 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 relish this experience. They both uh, wax eloquent about it uh, in speeches and and published uh, writings afterwards, and they say it was very meaningful to them. It was a deeply moving experience because it it cemented the the relationship that they had. Now remember that. Uh, FDR is an Episcopalian, right. Churchill's nominally Anglican, so they share the same faith. They have a lot of the same, they have the same prayer book. They have a lot of the same uh, theological presuppositions. And and then I should say that later that year in December, after the Pearl Harbor, uh, Churchill will come to the United States to speak to Congress and do some other uh, network building, and he'll spend time with Roosevelt. And while they're there, they will go to a Christmas service at Foundry Methodist Church, and they'll have a service at, at um, Christ Church in Alexandria, which was George Washington's church for the National Day of Prayer and Fasting on the 1st of January. Wow. And both those experiences were bonding experiences as well, and and, and stressed the, the, the faith that the two of them shared. Was Roosevelt uh, a more self-conscious uh, adherent to the Christian faith? Oh, absolutely. And in the book I talk about how Roosevelt is appealing to prayer a lot more during the war than Roosevelt is. Although national days of prayer and morning fasting in England are called by the king rather than the prime minister. Oh, I'm sorry, who was, who was relying on prayer more? Roosevelt. Roosevelt FDR. was, yeah. Okay. That's yeah, FDR thought. had a lot more to say about it, encouraged the American people to pray much more than Churchill did, um, talked a lot more in speeches about distinctive Christian things like 
Jesus Christ, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. Um, and and the Bible. But it is true, certainly, that Churchill's rhetoric is laced with religious aspects, because again, he's appealing to this deep, profound, historic British faith. Yeah. And yeah. in times of, of trouble and tragedy, and when Britain stands alone against the Nazis with no help from anybody else, it's a uh, and the Blitz is going, and they're being bombed frequently in London and other cities. It's a harrowing time, and there's the fear that they could be invaded any day for a period of about nine months. So you can see why Churchill would make this kind of appeal to something that was deep at the heart of many British people. Yeah. How, how, how did he interpret his rejection after World War II by the British people? Well, initially, he was, like many commentators, shocked that he was defeated in July of 1945, and Natalie became the prime minister. He just he couldn't believe that he had lost, given what he had done for the British people and the role he had, the indispensable role he had played in right. the war. But not too long thereafter, he came to see it kind of as a mixed blessing, because Britain was dealing with the its decline in power, rationing, um, it, it's the empire being under challenge and assault around the world. It gave Churchill time to do some of his most amazing writing and his interpretation of World War II, uh, and, of course, present himself in a very positive light in terms of the role that he played, and also then to be a kind of prophetic statesman with regard to the the Iron Curtain and the rise of the Cold War and the the dangers that were posed by um, Stalin and, and the Soviet Union. But then when he becomes prime minister a second time between 1951 and 1955, he will both, on the one hand, uh, denounce this communism, but on the other hand, he'll work quite closely with the Soviets to try to curb arm, the arms race and to bring about some kind of uh, reproachment with them. Uh, let me ask about some personal issues with him. Uh, uh, depression. Uh, it's often said that uh, he battled severe bouts of depression. What would that have meant to him? Um, were these moments of despair? Was a clinical problem? The black dog, what was that? Yeah, so it was, he first experienced it in his, um, his early 20s, and he was probably worse the last 10 years of his life. Ooh. Uh, in fact, he even questioned the last decade of his life whether he had done anything significant uh, because of the way the world was at that point. You know, we've defeated the Nazis, but now we've got the communists, and things yeah. are you know things are every bit as bad, if not worse. Yeah. You know, the world's on the brink of nuclear annihilation, and did it really accomplish anything by keeping the Nazi Nazis at bay? So, yeah, I would say it was it was kind of a clinical depression from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, he did. He generally was able to come out of it. It is remarkable, again, that he was able to do what he did, and he was so upbeat and optimistic yeah. in World War II, yeah. given his personal propensity toward uh, depression and toward what he called the mad dog. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I, he impresses me tremendously. What about his use of alcohol? <laughs> he drank a lot, um, <laughs> although uh, apparently it, it had very little negative impact upon him physically, mm-hmm. uh, but he would pretty much have a cigar in his mouth from the time he got up in the morning until he went to bed at night. He didn't always have it lit, but he'd have a cigar in his mouth, except when he was drinking, which was pretty frequently. Yeah. But yes, he did drink, drink a lot. Uh, rarely would he approach the level of drunkenness, Okay. but uh, he was he was under the influence a fair amount, I would, I would argue. Yeah. 
Okay, uh, and, and he lived to be ninety-three, so you really wonder about his his own, uh, you know, chemistry there. <laughs> he actually could absorb a lot. Uh, talk to me about his marriage. Well, Clementine, his wife, uh, was a real help made to him. Uh, he adored her. He uh, respected her. He respected her opinion. Uh, she was her own person. She was very independent. She had a stronger faith than he did, went to church a lot more than he did. I would argue prayed a lot more than he did, mm-hmm. had a more formative influence on on the children growing up. Of course, she didn't have the kind of weighted responsibility that he did. But uh, he he really needed her and recognized her value to him. Um, he was once asked if, if he couldn't be the prime minister of England, what what would he want to be? And he said uh, he would like to be her second husband. Um, so he just admired her uh, so much and was so convinced that she was she was good for him, and she was. Yeah. She absolutely was. Yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing. Um, uh, when he dies, there's this uh, funeral. It's a global spectacle. You point out. I honestly, I, I was too young to really pay much attention at the time, although I should have been paying attention. Um, what was it like? How was he regarded upon his death? Yeah, well, that's a great question, and, and very appropriate for today as we're thinking about the 56th anniversary of his death. Uh, he had a state funeral, which was normally reserved for kings and queens. Uh, only five times in British history had there been uh, a state funeral for a commoner. The last one before him had been William Gladstone, and so uh, that went back. That went back a ways. But um, his his funeral was viewed very differently by different groups. For some, it was seen as kind of a wake for the British Empire. These are our last days, and this is our great spokesman. So the empire is going to be uh, dying now. Uh, for some, it was a requiem for the courage the British displayed during World War II, and for still others, it was. Burial of the greatest Englishman that ever ever lived. They're, they're a great hero. Yeah. I do think it's interesting to note that a tenth of the world's population watched the funeral on TV. Wow. And if you combine the radio and television audience, it's about a third of the world's population. Yeah. And then more Americans watched his funeral than John F. Kennedy's funeral 14 months earlier. Wow. Gary, thank you so much. Great job. And I'm delighted to have the book. We'll talk again. Thanks, Al. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. 60 Seconds with Father Mitch Pacwa. Take a look at our website, EWTN.com, and the old programs. I've so far gone through the uh, encyclicals on Jesus, which is Redemptor Hominis, on God the Father, Divas and Misericordia, and on the Holy Spirit, Dominum et Vivificantem, also the one on the Gospel of Life, Evangelium Vitae, and the one on Redemptoris Mater, Mother of the Redeemer. So I've gone through five of those, and you can get those off of our website. Uh, Again, the website is www.ewtn.com, and then when you go to libraries, what you can do is go to the audio library, and the audio library will have uh, the uh, old programs. You can, they're all there, and you can just access them that way. May God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The people you know and trust. 
are on EWTN. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Thanks for joining us in that uh, first hour of the program. Go to AveMariaRadio.net. You can follow up on all the conversations we had. We'll have Gary Scott Smith's books available for you. And you can also take a look at, again, at Al's commentary about uh, what the scriptures have to say about eternal life. More to talk about in the next hour. We'll be back with more on Cresta in the Afternoon. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Cresta in the Afternoon as we kick off another Tuesday. If you were with us in the first hour, you heard a couple of things. First off, that, of course, Al's not here today. He is uh, iced into his driveway. He's on a uh, hilly dirt road, so it's a little difficult for him to get out of the driveway sometimes when the weather's like this. And also that today we're talking a lot about death. In the opening commentary, we uh, reviewed some comments by Al, in which he went through the scriptures and listed all the different times the scripture talks about eternal life. And the reason we did that was to set up a uh, conversation in this hour with Randall Smith, professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. And uh, Dr. Smith is the author of From Here to Eternity, Reflections on Death, Immortality, and the Resurrection of the Body. And he writes about it in an article that we'll have uh, linked in the guest archives that few things challenge our tranquility and provoke a sense of existential dread and more profoundly than the thought of death. If all we have striven for, all we have learned and experienced, and everything that we have loved simply comes to nothing, is there any point to life? Does life have any meaning? Uh, Vatican II, in its document Gaudium et Spes, writes that it is in the face of death that the riddle of human existence grows more acute. Man is tormented not only by pain and by the advancing deterioration of his body, but even more so by a dread of perpetual extinction. Uh, throughout history, many people have been convinced that there must be some life after death for there to be any meaning in life. 
And yet, some views of life after death can also make this life seem meaningless. If heaven's so wonderful, why waste time on earth? What about all we have struggled for, our relationships, our loves, our dedication to others? Do we simply abandon all we have loved when we die? For many, even those who believe in an afterlife, their greatest fear is losing their connections to the ones they love. Uh, these are questions that are obviously can take you know years to answer, but we'll try to answer some of them today in this discussion with uh, Randall Smith. His book, again, is From Here to Eternity, Reflections on Death, Immortality, and the Resurrection of the Body, exploring how the Christian view of the afterlife is revealed most fully in the person of the risen Christ. There are other images of heaven that are not unimportant, but they are still just images. The most central and important revelation about the afterlife is given by Christ himself in his own resurrected body. That's uh, the focus of our conversation in this hour. Before we go there, we would be remiss if we didn't mention, once again, congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, WGIC 94.9 FM in Clarksville, Tennessee, celebrating seven years with us this week. Congrats to Deacons Dominic Azara and his great team at the Immaculate Conception Parish in Tennessee. Looking forward to more work with you over the future. Let's talk about life and death with Randall Smith after this news break. Thanks, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, January 23rd. It's the Feast of St. Mary Ann Cope. Today's news brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. Former President Trump says the support he's getting in New Hampshire is amazing. Nobody gets crowds like this. They want to see our country be great again. It's very simple. Trump said the lines of people waiting to vote is like nothing he's ever seen. Trump holds a commanding lead in most New Hampshire polls. Meanwhile, on the Democratic side, President Biden's name isn't on the ballot due to a dispute over the primary calendar. However, other Democrats are, including Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips and author Marianne Williamson. Freezing rain and snow are expected to cause travel headaches in the central U.S. through tomorrow. The National Weather Service's warning of possible icy roads and power outages from the Midwest to the Northeast. Cleanup and recovery efforts are underway in Southern California after heavy rainfall pounded the region. Experts say online fraud is at a crisis level and being fueled by artificial intelligence. Fraud costs U.S. consumers more than $7 billion during the first three quarters of 2023, according to the FTC. The most popular fraud scams target grandparents using AI-generated voice recordings in elaborate imposter schemes. The Supreme Court is going along with the Biden administration's request to throw out a lower court ruling which banned federal agents from moving razor wire that Texas has installed across the southern border. The ruling clears the way for federal officials to remove physical barriers and help illegal immigrants who are struggling to cross the Rio Grande. And the youngest son of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has died at the age of 62. The King Center says Dexter Scott King passed away Monday. His wife, Leah Weber King, says he passed away peacefully in his sleep at their home in Malibu. He's been battling prostate cancer. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Dude, I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for joining me. Every one of us is going to die, and um, and many of us, I'm sure, have spent a good deal of time uh, trying to ignore that fact. The denial of death is a fairly common phenomenon among human beings. 
My guest, uh, Dr. Rendell Smith, is full professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas. He is the author of Reading the Sermons of Thomas Aquinas, A Beginner's Guide, and Aquinas of Bonaventure and the Scholastic Culture of Medieval Paris. More recently, though, he's published From Here to Eternity, Reflections on Death, Immortality, and the Resurrection of the Body. Randall, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It is a funny thing that the thing that we seem to be most certain of, that we will die, uh, is what we so frequently deny uh, until we can't deny it any longer. Why is that? Well, it's a very hard thing to face, obviously. Um, I quote from the Second Vatican Council, I mean, you don't need the council for this, that um, <laughs> it's one of the things that um, is one of the great challenges, right? I mean, nothing causes us to question our existence uh, more than the issue of death. Mm-hmm. Um, the notion that our very existence will stop is something that, in a sense, some people have said, impossible to imagine, because, of course, if you're imagining it... You're still there. Um, you're still there. <laughs> right. So, um, anyway, it, 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 you know, and again, the notion, uh, as you said in the introduction, that everything we've worked for, all the things we've built, but also all the relationships we've had in our yeah. lives, the people we've loved, if at the end... It just is oblivion. It's just nothingness. Well, then, what was the point of all that? And that's what, you know, really challenges our sense of meaning in life. Yeah, yeah. Um, Has this, I mean, has this become this threat of meaninglessness, this pointlessness, the idea of an absurd universe, has this become more common over the last 150, 200 years in Western culture? Well, you know, uh, not having lived 250 years ago, I mean, I, I don't know exactly, but I, I think there's uh, evidence that that's true. Now, look, again, there's always been the, uh, the threat of meaninglessness, mm-hmm. so that you find within cultures throughout history a yearning for immortality or a yearning for something after death. Right, this isn't somehow like just, well, Christians made this up. <laughs> right, no, right. Cultures and people everywhere have, have uh, struggled against this limitation and, and, and wanted somehow to transcend death. So in this way, Christian revelation uh, is meeting something which I think is actually deep within the human person. I think, uh, as I always say to my students, the problem isn't that we want too much, it's that we settle on too little. God has put an infinite desire for an infinite good in our hearts. And thus, you know, the, but the problem, of course, then, is the only thing that can feed that, the only thing that can satisfy us, is God himself. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's go to a spot where you, you spend time on at the very beginning in the book, and that is the, um, the criticism that somehow uh, the Christian understanding of the afterlife... Uh, makes diminishes the significance of this earthly life. Uh, it's been said many different ways, uh, but that somehow, um, because we believe in life after death, 
because we believe in heaven, because we believe in a life that persists beyond the grave, that somehow that makes us less than responsible uh, citizens in our own time. Uh, This is a fairly common view. Yeah, I mean, one might say it's, uh, I think it is common, and it's common, you know, it's one of those things that has kind of gotten handed down uh, from the 19th century, particularly people like Marx, Mm -hmm. right? That's why he called a religion the opiate of the masses, right? Because, uh, you know, the notion was that, oh, what Christianity does is it promises people this lovely afterlife so they don't fight for justice now. Right. Right. People go, well, yes, you're, you're being treated horribly. You're being beaten. You're, there's a horrible injustice for the working conditions of the poor. But it'll all be fine because in heaven you get... Now, first of all, if, Chris says, with so often is the, the criticisms of Christianity, if the Church had been saying that, well, that would be bad. I don't think the Church ever says that. Now, you, you can't say that no one has ever made that mistake right, within the right. Church, but I don't think that's true. Um, but, and of course, one might have said back to Marx, for example, look, uh, look around, uh, <laughs> Carl. It's not as though the people in the Church aren't taking care of the poor and fighting for justice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In fact, you find more people like Mother Teresa, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, yeah. who are willing to go you know, above and beyond, precisely because they believe in an afterlife. People who are willing to die for justice, precisely because they believe in an afterlife. Uh, I, when I first went to Lourdes years and years ago, I was a new convert to Catholicism, and one thing I noticed was the amazing care for all the people there. Yeah. And I thought to myself, as I was watching the... Um, Eucharistic procession, which happens in Lourdes twice a day, I think, actually. And I was all these people were brought. I thought there isn't a place anywhere in the developed world where you could get all these sick people out into the sunshine and back twice a day, no matter how rich. You have to go to this strange, I don't think it's strange, I think it's, you know, wonderful, but this strange little place in Lourdes where people go just to, you know, because they believe in Bernadette and our you know, St. Bernadette and, and, and Our Lady, et cetera, et cetera, that's where you find this amazing concern for all these people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but I, look, I, let me say, though, I mean, if I do say in the book, right, I, I want to grant that it is important what notion of the afterlife we have, because in fact, part of the argument or part of the thing I try to describe is that I think no other view of the afterlife gives a good account that would make this life meaningful. Because you don't want a notion of the afterlife that would make this life seem meaningless. Right. And there are plenty of views of the afterlife in other religions, and sometimes Catholics might hold the wrong view. If you don't understand the resurrection of the body, then it could make this life meaningless. Yeah, yeah. So this world becomes something that we must escape uh, and and uh, the, the way we do that is any one of a number of ways. I mean, but if you... Uh, I always say that about, if, for example, the, the is, Left Behind series. Yeah. As though somehow, well, God is, is, you know, taking out the good people, 
and then some others are left behind. If people know anything about that series, I'm from the South, and of course, you know, it's a, it's a big sure. seller, that, that series of books. But I always think, wow, very nice of God to take out all the nice people and then leave all the bad people behind, and then we're supposed to make, you know, the world after that. You know, you take out all the saints and everything, and then good luck to you, you know. And, and that's just not ever been the, the Catholic message. Well, I, I think you point out that uh, just as we teach that grace perfects nature, so our understanding of the afterlife should perfect our understanding of life in this world. Yeah, I think this is very important in the sense that we don't want to think that, well, we live a certain kind of life, and then what heavenly life is is something, you know, fundamentally different. Now, it is different, I understand, I'm not denying, but here's the point. You don't want to say, for example, to use an obvious example, um, the whole point is to be chaste and respect women in this life so that you can go into the next life and have sex with 76 virgins. Right, right. Bob, there's a disconnect right. like, there. Yeah, there's a disconnect <laughs> there. Like that, how could you respect that kind of life? And I go through examples of that where I think, you know, um, the notion of the afterlife essentially undermines the view of the virtues of this life. Whereas in uh, the Christian notion of the resurrection of the body, um, in the idea of the, particularly of the communion of saints, mm -hmm. right, that fundamental principle of love God, love your neighbors yourself, is something that continues on in heaven. And so the message then is, start living in heaven right now right and the promise is that you'll never have to leave yeah yeah very good very good we're we're if we want to get a reliable picture of the afterlife in action okay i mean there are all these private revelations that tell about heaven or hell and there's near-death experiences where do you think we should look to get a reliable picture of the afterlife in action that's a very, very good question, and one I, I humbly take up in the book, I hope, but I, I think people will understand this ultimately, which is to say, look, there are many different images, all valuable in their own way, about the afterlife, or you know, what we call heaven, but I think the ultimate revelation of what is true about the afterlife is given to us in the person of the resurrected Christ. Yeah. Right. Again, what heaven is, is union with God. Mm -hmm. And what the resurrected body of the resurrected Christ tells us is that death, we can have this unity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's a sort of unity which does not destroy our individuality or our personhood, is maybe a better way of putting that, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, when you see the resurrected Christ, it's not as though there's a god-like person there who says, I am Phoenix, you know, the god who is hidden inside the man who has now been released, etc., etc. <laughs> you have actual Jesus, right? The man, the yeah. person. And that's, we in the afterlife, we retain our connections to the people we love. We are our person, but we are fully united with God. Very good. Randall, hold it there. We've got to take a break. We'll come back and continue conversation. My guest is uh, Dr. Randall Smith. The book, From Here to Eternity, Reflections on Death, Immortality, and the Resurrection of the Body. I'm Al Cresta. 
Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. John 14. This is Jesus in the upper room with the disciples before he's going out to his sacrifice of himself for our salvation. And Philip says to the Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus looks at Philip and says, Philip, have I been with you all this time? Don't you understand? When you see me, you're looking at the Father. In fact, only two people throughout human history have given rise to the question, not who is he, but what is he? The two people are Buddha and Jesus. Buddha's answer was, don't come to me, don't look to me, look to my doctrine, look to what I teach. Jesus' answer was, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Jesus is explicitly claiming to be God. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Parents often complain that their kids either don't do their chores or don't do a good job with them. How can parents teach kids to do chores well? The easiest way to teach kids healthy attitudes toward chores is to create family work rituals where families do chores together. Daily family work rituals give parents and kids an opportunity to work side by side, learning good stewardship, responsibility, and teamwork. Family work rituals provide on-the-job training for chores so that when kids eventually get their own chores, they know what's expected of them and how to do them well. That's one reason family rituals for working together are such an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I want you to have such confidence in the Lord that you'll find such hope and see the beauty of the Lord. The majesty of God. What did our Lord say, huh? If your sins are as scarlet, oh, what? What's going to happen? They shall be made white as snow. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life health care durable power of attorney accessible anytime on smartphones and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at mylifeangels.com. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. 
CharityMobile.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Randall Smith, uh, author of From Here to Eternity, Reflections on Death, Immortality, and the Resurrection of the Body. Before the break, we were talking about the a reliable picture of the afterlife in action, and uh, we look at the resurrected Christ, who is there, he's identifiable as this, the same person who was crucified, he's in relationship with the men and women uh, that he loved and lived with uh, prior to his death. Uh, he has certain uh, powers, I guess you would say, that... Uh, would indicate a, a, a glorified existence of some sort. Uh, you know, I, it is so that's so much more reassuring than the view of an old Buddhist acquaintance of mine who said that at death, what he looked forward to was entering uh, this kind of ocean of consciousness without leaving a ripple. <laughs> I always thought, that's not, that doesn't sound very reassuring to me. No, I, uh, I had a, uh, a student once who asked me, um, yeah, Professor Smith, what, what is the whole point of life? It's like we're trapped in the prison of the body. Mm. And, 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 and what you're supposed to do in life is find the key to get out of the prison. Wow. To which I said, well, look, if that's what you think, then you should be about your business, because obviously for you, there would be nothing worse than being on your deathbed and saying to yourself, I didn't find the key. Yeah. But if you were asking me, I quite like having a body. <laughs> I like smell and taste and touch. I like hugging and kissing, right? I like all those things, and those are things of functions of a body, all right? And I like being an individual person and having relations with other persons. And so I have no desire, as it were, to be just, and that's an image which is popular, the drop of water returning to the ocean. Yeah. Because then there is no drop of water anymore. Right. So that just seems to me a little, little like the oblivion thing. Like, I just want to be, you know, glommed into the whole of everything and forget who I was and no longer am anything. Yeah. And that isn't desirable uh, to me, and I think to most people. Um, but, but look, you know, uh, if you lived in a culture that thought individuality was the source of sin and evil, well then, <clears throat> I suppose, you might have that notion of the afterlife, right? But um, I'm not sure it would be something that would be ultimately desirable to most people in our society. Right, if they truly understood that notion of, you know, sort of being melted down. I use the example from uh, the uh, Ibsen's, uh, Enric Ibsen's Peer Gint, where the button molder comes to Peer Gint and says, well, you're just going to be melted down. You know, they used to have metal buttons. Metal buttons. You'll just be melted down and then be made into a new button because you're not worth anything. And wow. this is the thing that terrifies him. Yeah. He's like, rather hell than to just be melted into nothing, and there's nothing left of pure Gint at all. Mm. That's our image and that we have, it seems to me. 
we we are facing in our culture now the rise of a, a movement called transhumanism that you address uh, in the book and this is uh, again there are various groups associated with this transhumanist movement um they they in a way they're proposing a, a new type of immortality uh right they, they want to say that look what's what we're trying to do the evolutionary process has become aware of itself and now we are about choosing the next phase of our evolution and there's the hope that there'll be some sort of merging between nat- natural intelligence and artificial intelligence, and that will eradicate disease, will eliminate suffering, reverse aging. Uh, there's this Methuselah project. Extend the lifespan, expand our intellectual, physical, and emotional capabilities. And um, I do not know, I've been watching this for a few years, I don't know if it's getting momentum at a popular cultural level, but it does attract a lot of very bright people. And uh, tell me what you see going on there. Well, this is <laughs> what's funny about that, of course, is that, uh, and I use examples, this has been a long wish, right? And, and one of the responses people have to this idea of, you know, can we somehow defeat death? Right. And the point would be, well, maybe we could defeat death by just extending life indefinitely, mm-hmm. right? Like, why why die right. at all? And um, <clears throat> the thing is, if you look at the ancient world, they had lots of um, stories about this, characters who, one of the famous ones that shows up in T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland is the Sibyl, who is the prophetess of Apollo in Kume, and she shows up in, in uh, the Aeneid, for example. And... Um, at the beginning of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, there's a line from the Satyricon which says, Then the young boys would say, Oh, Sybil, Sybil, what do you want? And she would say, I want to die. Because what had happened is the Sybil had asked for eternal life. <clears throat> Excuse me. And she was granted eternal life, but she forgot to ask for eternal youth. And so she just got older and older and older and older and so shriveled that she would be hung from a jar Hmm. from the roof of the cave. So um, always when you have these stories throughout history, and there are many of them, Gulliver's Travels has a similar thing, about this thing about, like, you know, not dying, like living on for 400 years, it always ends up very badly. So you might take, um, you know, you can read these sort of great parables. Yeah. themselves and sort of say, yeah, this isn't a good idea. Boredom comes, forgetfulness comes, relationships. Again, if you're the only one who stays alive and everyone else dies, then you have to watch everyone else around you that you love die, but you don't die. And then, you know, so there's a, there's a whole thing like that. But as I always want to say to people as well, look, there's something about the natural order that we see in nature and in us, which is to say, if there are going to be new people, young people, babies, right, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, then the older generation has to, as it were, move on Mm -hmm. to make room for new growth. Sure. Right? And so you would say, look, do you want there to be a world where there are children and grandchildren, and your children can have their own children, and they can have their own children? If the answer is yes, then the point is, will you understand doing the numbers pretty quickly that if no one dies, 
that system can't happen, right? right? If no one dies, pretty soon there's not only 8 billion people, there's 16 billion people and 20, you know, right? There's no room anymore for anyone else. Yeah. No, very right? true. And very so true. It's like, look, do you love your children and grandchildren? But the fear, of course, is, but I don't want to leave them. That's the promise of the communion of saints is that we don't lose those connections. Right. We're still connected to the people we love, right? Absolutely. Francis is still, in many ways, attached in love to Assisi. It's just that that love has expanded now beyond that time and that particular place. But it's no less for his time, his people, his friars. This is, this is so true. And again, it's, it's, uh, it's so caricatured, um, and, and satirized in uh, uh, comic routines and and um, you know uh, various publications that I I think our people are sometimes afraid of being robustly committed to this idea of the communion of saints that there is some sort of uh, you know death is not some sort of uh, meat cleaver that comes down and separates uh, the the living and the dead. Uh, the, there's not an impermeable membrane between this world and the next. Uh, the saints in heaven are certainly aware of what's going on on the earth. At least there's a clear picture of that in the book of Revelation. Uh, and we have, exp- I mean, you hear people say, and again, this is, I don't want to theologize too much on this experience, but you often hear people say that uh, upon the passing of loved ones that they receive some sort of consolation afterwards. Uh, You know, this, again, it's not submitted for investigation, but it seems to be of help. There's kind of a a lived sense of the communion of saints, uh, at least when it comes to loved ones. I'm not talking about canonized saints here. but we don't talk about it very often. We're afraid of talking about it, it seems to me. We're afraid of being thought foolish, uh, victims of folk religion or something like that. Um, but, but I think a yeah. robust understanding of the communion of saints really maintains this idea of community. We don't lose one another. And, and again, this is one of the great promises. I, um, we can understand why people think, well, nothing past that veil of death. But this is the promise of the gospel. Again, I think one of the things people fear the most about death is precisely losing their loved ones. And even for those people who believe in heaven, it's kind of like, well, I'm going away, right? As though heaven were, you know, Cincinnati or so. You know, like you leave (laughs) L.A. and you end up in Cincinnati, and it's kind of like, well, I'll be in Cincinnati, I'll be able to see my kids in L.A. You know, and that's not the idea, right? The idea of the communion of saints is like the resurrected Christ which is to say Christ now can be with everyone everywhere. And as I always say to people, look, this is one of the great tragedies to my mind of losing that sense of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, which mm-hmm. people talk about, right? Mm-hmm. I don't go into this in detail in the book, but it's a very, very deep thing. Because losing that sense that, no, Christ is really present in the Eucharist, right? As present as he was to the Twelve and the disciples during life, and as present as he was in that upper room, right, or on the shore uh, of the lake uh, when he appeared after his death, that he's as present, 
Because, of course, if you don't believe that anymore, you think, well, he's sort of, you know, in our memory. He's kind of, you know, this community is celebrating. Then you no longer accept the possibility right. that your grandmother, your beloved grandmother, still is present yeah. to you. Yeah. Right? And still there and still praying for you even more powerfully. Not just sitting next to you, but in you and above you and united with God, praying. Right? Yeah. Knowing. Yeah, and and again, uh, hopefully purged of all disordered self love. She's a- a- actually able to help uh, uh, help us. Uh, right. So again, when people ask the saints, I just simply say, "Do you ask your grandmother to pray for you?" And people, you say yes, and I say, "Well, what makes you think she wouldn't now, with the risen Christ, be praying for you now?" <laughs> exactly. Uh, Randall Holt, there. We got to take another break. We'll come back, continue the conversation. My guest, Dr. Randall Smith, looking at death, immortality, and the resurrection of the body, and the great joy we have in the resurrection, the great hope we have of eternal life that we can experience even now. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. It's not as scary as I thought it was. <laughs> it's a much more warm and open place, and God really is about love. It's not about the rules and the things that I remember as a young child. It really is about the love that God has for each one of us that's so um, deep and wonderful. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for any reason, visit catholicscomehome.org. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. CMF Curo is a Catholic health care ministry providing families nationwide with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, our members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. And now, the EWTN Family Prayer with Father Joseph. Family, a prayer that we pray together is a powerful prayer. So please pray together with me, our EWTN Family Prayer. Today we pray for the caregivers of the sick. O Most Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we adore you. You have first loved us, and through your Son you have taught us the excellence of self-giving love. Give to those who are caregivers of a sick parent or child, brother or sister, the assistance of your holy angels. Lessen their burdens 
and give them great joy in practicing a work of mercy. And since charity is never forgotten by you, reveal to them their heavenly reward. Amen. What qualifies as a valid marriage in the eyes of the Catholic Church? The Catechism tells us there are certain requirements that must be present or the marriage is not a true sacrament. The requirements are as follows. The marriage must be between a baptized man and a baptized woman who are free to contract marriage and who freely express their consent. The Catechism defines freedom to contract as not being under constraint and not impeded by any natural or ecclesiastical law. The exchange of consent between the spouses is considered by the Church to be the most indispensable element of a valid marriage. According to the Catechism, the consent must be an act of the will of each party, free of coercion or grave external fear. If this freedom is lacking, the marriage is not valid. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Rindle Smith. We're looking at uh, death, immortality, and the resurrection of the body. Uh, his book is From Here to Eternity. Let me go to uh, the return of Christ at the end of history. And, uh, you know, we, we know that, that certain times in history you write uh, reflections on end times have become deranged and dangerous. Um, and yet, uh, we expect him to return. And it's common, of course, and it was common even in the first century for people to say, well, what do you mean he's coming back? You know, everything just goes on as it's always gone on. Uh, that's a vain hope. How do we continue to sustain confidence in his coming at the end of history? Uh, during times when the world mocks the very idea of a second coming? Well, as I point out in the book, um, <clears throat> and people may know this, in some sense I hope they don't worry about it too much, but some people will say, oh, in the New Testament, you know, in the letters of Paul, he believes in a, an imminent eschaton, right? Mm -hmm. like the the yeah. second coming is coming very quickly. Yeah. But then it didn't happen, so then they had to change things, etc. I, I say, look, <clears throat> aside from that, which I think is not, there's that, what seems like a kind of ambiguity, is appropriate for us in this way. Mm -hmm. Because it's important that we realize, or, or sort of say to ourselves, well, first thing, Christ says, the time and the season, no one knows. Right. Right. So whenever anybody's preaching this, it's going to be, you know that that's not legitimate, because Christ says, no one knows the time. Right. But, so then what are we supposed to think about that? Well, it seems to me, right, that, and I always say this to my students, so look, when you read the New Testament, which is our revelation, the only way we would know anything about it, or have any hope in it, really, mm -hmm. What, what should we think? And, the, and I say, here's what you should say to yourself, and I will say to you, the second coming could come before the end of this class, 
right? Yeah. You got to be awake and al- and ready at every moment. And of course, this is true about death as well. That's right. I said, look, every semester we have some student who gets tragically killed or dies from cancer or something like that. Mm. You know, I hate to point that out, but it is true, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, in a sense, it's important that at every moment, all right, we say to ourselves, what does God want of me now? On the other hand, I say to my students, so look, the second coming, seriously, I want to be serious about this, could come before the end of this class. I said, but the same token, it may not, so you better study for the final. <laughs> right? right? It's okay to make plans for the future, right? In other words, God, a blink of an eye, is like 30,000 years for God. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it could come almost instantly, but for God, as we all know, God takes his own good time, right? Right. right. It could be a while. We make plans, and we should make plans that say, I want to care, I want to love for people, I want to serve God, and so I think very seriously about, right, shopping, making food for my family, doing things, etc., etc., knowing at every moment that we have to stay awake and alive and say to ourselves, what do I want to find God to find me doing? What do, yes. I, what do I want Christ to find me doing when he returns? That's right. That's right. I, I know in my own life uh, it, it helped me when I returned to the Catholic faith uh, to remember that there are multiple ways in which uh, Christ comes to us, and one of them being, of course, the Eucharist. So there's a, a little rehearsal, you might say, uh, for the yeah. end in every Mass. And uh, by that, making that part of, uh, by tying the celebration of the Eucharist with uh, the end of history, it's it's made his final coming uh, more, just at an emotional level, more plausible and workable. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful thing. I wish I'd mentioned that more in the book, actually. I mean, I talk about the Eucharist, but it's a beautiful thing, as though... Um, you know, our belief that in uh, at the moment of death, you know, we're we're brought into uh, more fully, most fully, into the body of Christ. Or to put it in another way, we might say Christ comes to meet us, right? Yes. Well, of course, yes. That if you've been, you're gotten yourself into the habit of meeting Christ and incorporating yourself in communion in the body of Christ throughout your life by accepting the Eucharist, by becoming a deeper, right, sort of member of the body of Christ in the Church, well, then this would seem um, very natural, one might say, even though it's a supernatural act. Sure. Right? It, it, it gets you prepared in very important ways, right? Yeah, yeah. Let me go to something that you do spend the whole chapter on here, and it's facing death. And it seems to me that this is one way that the Christian community generally, and certainly Catholics in particular, can appear to be, appear to live a very different life, the way that we face death as a community. Uh, and what would you like to see our, what would you like to see happening uh, for, with our parishes, uh, with our fellowships, our our apostolates, to help us as a community help one another face death more fully? Well, this is very, very important, and I say this throughout the book, uh, including in the preface. Namely, would this book be enough? And the answer is no, right? 
we have to do this. So the question comes up, like, well, Professor Smith, then what would you suggest? And my answer is, we have to face death as a church, yeah. right? Yep. We have to face death as a community. We face it as a church liturgically. We face it in and through the Mass. We face it through other liturgical um, celebrations. It's very important. And what we've done, I think, too often, is we've outsourced it to the medical community yeah. that can't yeah. really help. Now, look, I, I never want to downplay the value <laughs> that we get from the medical community. Yeah. I really, they do good work. But here's a place where, as I think they would admit, they can't go, right? Because they're about healing. And at a certain point, right, in people's lives, they simply aren't going to be healed. They're going to die. And the question then is, well, then what's there for the medical community to do? And the answer is to keep people comfortable. But more than that, they don't know quite what to do. And that's where we as a community, it seems to me, and using our liturgy have to come in. And there have been throughout history, as I point out in the book, right, actual liturgies um, and chants that uh, communities have used to accompany the dying. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I want uh, communities more and more to embrace that, it seems to me, so that, in fact, death doesn't seem so deeply, deeply terrifying to people, because it's something they never see. People are always much more frightened of the unknown. Mm-hmm. And if they had experienced a circumstance where people were surrounded by love and by chant and by music and by liturgy in the face of the Church, I think it would be much less frightening. The other thing I recommend is, which is, I suppose, in some ways the most controversial thing in the book, is read, uh, restoring the practice of having churchyards, that is to say, cemeteries around yeah. churches. Yeah. Because it's very important, I think, that people have this sense as they're going into Mass that they are surrounded by the communion of saints, yes. not only the recognized saints, that's important, but here's where my grandmother is. Yeah. I can stop on my way, say a little prayer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Here's where my family has lain for generations, etc. Here's where I will be. There's something I think that'd be very important about that. Mm. That churches take on the business of death again. The funeral homes are really horrible, I think. They're not anything like a home. All the business of the rosary and the visitation, everything should be done, it seems to me, in the church by the community. Yeah. Now, that's very good. Um, so, uh, yeah, this, is, this is something that will take—this uh, is an idea that needs to catch on, it seems to me, because we're talking about rest- restoration of uh, local church cemeteries and— I like that. I think it makes a great deal of sense. Uh, we we maybe before we get around to doing that, the church can do a better job of also accompanying the elderly. And um, yes, you know that goes along with it too. Of course, yeah. right? Again, the fear that we have in this culture of being old, right? And yeah. that's simply one of the best things churches could do, it seems to me, is to work to restore the respect for the elderly, right? Honor your father and mother, etc. But not only that, right? Again, not giving into the youth culture, but saying, look, youth, 
It's not a terrifying thing to get older and to have families and to have children and grandchildren. It's a great thing. It's a very important thing to the society. And, uh, yeah, that is something the Church could do, uh, which would be very important. I will only say, I always like to tell this story, because I know, you know, this idea of churchyards, many people be like, oh, who could do that? <laughs> and I, tell, I had a, a guy I knew um, who had heard this uh, thing I'd read, written in the Catholic thing about this, and he went to the person in the diocese who uh, dealt with this kind of stuff, and he said, hey, how about churchyards? I'd like to support that, and this seems like a good idea. And this person said, oh, no, 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 the bishop, the bishop doesn't want any churchyards. And he went, why not? And he goes, well, because if you have a churchyard, it makes it impossible to close the parish. <laughs> and I, I said, oh, I should, and I know maybe I told that story in the book, because I said, after I heard this and in, in different interviews, I've said, if churches found out this out, I think they would immediately go out in the back and bury like ten people. Right? Go, what do you mean? It makes it impossible to close the parish. Okay, we're putting like oh, Bishop, Bishop, we're putting down some roots here, right? That's we great. We have our, you know, ancestors are buried right here. Okay, so there's no move in us. But anyway, that's great. That's great. Uh, do you know any, have you seen any particular Christian communities, uh, parishes, uh, orders, that are, are, have this kind of large understanding of preparation for death and are living with a sense of the communion of saints that are focused on the resurrection of the body, um, churchyards, uh, is, is anybody out there that you think is doing a really good job of this? Well, I haven't really, right? I mean, there still are churchyards, uh, and I think they still get used in some places, particularly in England. Um, we haven't, uh, we used to have it in the United States. Again, it isn't something happens. But I will say that um, when I was having uh, a, a talk at my house by uh, this young woman, who um, has unearthed a lot of these medieval um, chants mm -hmm. that used peace to be used all the time. Uh, there was a young woman there who had been a novice for a year with the uh, uh, Nashville Dominicans. Yeah, okay. And, um, uh, and I've known some Nashville Dominicans, but I, I've never been there, and I don't really know much about the community. But she told this story about how when a sister was dying, the whole community would gather together. A bell would ring, and the whole community would get, and they would all pray the rosary to accompany the sister dying. And I thought, well, that's very beautiful. And of course, everybody was like, ah, oh, what a beautiful thing, right? So there is that. Yeah. No, it's good. Listen, we're out of time. But I enjoyed the conversation immensely, Randall. Thank you so much. Thank you. From here to eternity, Randall Smith. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. 
Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. Maybe you've even prayed the prayer of spiritual communion. Spiritual communion is a concept that goes all the way back to the 4th century. It flourished in the Eastern Church and gradually moved west. Spiritual communion stresses the transcendence of God, where we unite our desires, intentions, and loves with the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the consecration of the Eucharist at the altar. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. Dr. Ray Garendi. What's the definition of frustration? Frustration is the difference between the way it is and the way you want it to be. It's hard to change the way it is. The way it is sometimes is other people, life, circumstances. The way you want it to be is in your power to change. You can close the gap between reality and what you want. The smaller that gap, the less your frustration. It is always easier to change oneself than to change reality. Frustration isn't always what happens out there. It is how we look at what happens out there. Thanks for joining us over the last two hours. As we go off the air, Catholic Answers Live is ready to take your calls. And of course, you can follow up with anything we talked about today by going to AveMariaRadio.net and going to the Cresta Guest Archives. We'll have Gary Scott Smith's book available for you there on the life of Winston Churchill, as well as Randall Smith's book, From Here to Eternity, Reflections on Death, Immortality, and the Resurrection of the Body. Uh, be joining us tomorrow as we continue talking about the things that matter most. We'll be sitting down with Greg Lukiel enough who joined us a few years ago. He had an excellent book called The Coddling of the American Mind. He has now written a bit of a sequel to it called The Canceling of the American Mind. Cancel culture undermines trust and threatens us all, but there is a solution. We get that solution in tomorrow's Cresta in the Afternoon. Until then, have a great evening and God bless. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.